Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I also think it can be really dangerous to treat the social esteem itself like the end goal, because ultimately not everyone in your community or your friend group or, or whoever it is is going to have the same values as you, who is going to reward the same types of behaviors that you most admire. And so if you allow that to essentially rule your life and your behavior, you might find yourself becoming a person that you yourself don't even approve of. And that's ultimately that the one person who is most important to get the approval of is yourself. That's essentially what I'm arguing in this book is the highest peak of well-being or what, what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia is really a, a state of being highly approving of yourself and justifiably so, right? Feeling like your behaviors that you're taking on a regular basis are exactly what you would admire in someone else. And so I think status can be both a good kind of source of feedback for whether you're living according to your values or not, but it can also be a, a big distraction. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ryan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Srini. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Become Who You Are, which is really, really deep and rich uh, in terms of really understanding mindset and, and how every, we all function. But given the, the subject matter of the book and the nature of it, I thought I would start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing with your life and your career? And how did it shape this perspective that you developed? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, there's a lot, a lot to that because when I uh, first went to high school, uh, technically it was <clears throat> middle school. I um, I had been homeschooled and went to Montessori school before that, and so it was kind of my first time in like real school. And uh, I was I was kind of like shocked when I got there. I felt like I was on an alien planet uh, because I, you know, really didn't have the social skills needed to operate in that space. And I, I kind of thought like by seventh grade, people were pretty much adults. And so I uh, I was like not on the right uh, wavelength there. And so for a, a while, I was very much a loner 
kind of person. I, I wasn't uh, the type to really talk to anyone except for like one word answers and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, <clears throat> at a certain point, I kind of uh, reflected and said, you know, I'm not really proud of who I am right now. I feel like I'm kind of scared of the world and avoiding, uh, you know, everything in my life, just trying to get by. And uh, I asked myself, what would change that? What would help me grow into the person I wanted to be? And it, it still amazes me now that in seventh grade, I, you know, had this realization, but I decided to get as far out of my comfort zone as I possibly could. Um, and so for me, a big part of that was joining the football team, even though I was this 100 pound kid who didn't talk, I was more of a chess team type of person. Uh, but I ended up joining the football team in eighth grade and, uh, you know, went through just uh, this miserable initiation of just having to run until I puked and, you know, getting my lights knocked out by people three times my size. And, uh, and, and I ended up staying on the football team that year. And then the next four years of high school and kind of, kind of like hanging out with the football players, even though, um, you know, there's, uh, something kind of weird about that, given just my, uh, you know, the way my mind worked and everything. But I think it really served to open up my comfort zone and to get me, um, to a point where I, I couldn't, I couldn't scare myself that easily. You know, public speaking was like not that big of a deal uh, when I compared it to going out on, uh, you know, a game night and getting prepared to like get beaten up out there. And so it was a, a huge kind of project I took on in, in general of just getting out of my comfort zone and um, gradually bringing more and my more and more of myself out for my peers to see more of my creativity and my sense of humor. Uh, and gradually going from that kid who, uh, you know, couldn't really even communicate with his peers to uh, someone who now goes on a podcast every day and, uh, you know, does a lot of this uh, much more extroverted kind of stuff that I've gotten comfortable yeah. with. It, it's funny because I remember reading that and I, I had a very similar experience. I, I don't know if you grew up in Texas because in te Texas, there are seventh graders the size of grown men. Um, and much like yourself, I got the shit beat out of me. But unlike you, when the coach called in eighth grade to ask if I was coming out for football, I'm like, why the fuck are you calling me if I'm coming out for football? No. <laughs> After seventh grade, I was like, no go. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that I, I'm curious about, you mentioned this feeling that you thought that, you know, everybody is an adult by seventh grade. So I'm curious what homeschooling was like. Like, what do we misunderstand? Because I've talked to a handful of people who are homeschooled. Um, and it seems in a lot of ways, it's a very self-directed way of educating, which, you know, even Dan Pink says that should be foundational to our modern education system, even if it is through public schools, which there it's not self-directed at all. So talk to me one about the experience of homeschooled and of course the challenges in the transition in terms of like having to actually sit down and do what a teacher says. Yeah. So a, a few things to that. It, it was very self-directed overall. Um, but I actually felt, felt like academically I was overprepared. Like the school was pretty easy after homeschool. So that part wasn't a challenge. It was very much the social component. And at the time, I was kind of critical of homeschooling and of Montessori school. And I said all this stuff about how like, oh, that's stupid. That's not real school. And you should go to real school. And um, and and I think in hindsight, uh, I, I don't actually know if the regular school system is all that healthy for us. I feel like uh, maybe it wasn't my social skills that were a problem. Um, but, but certainly in terms of adapting, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think I, uh, I did grow up in a household that kind of rewarded maturity and, and, uh, you know, I, I guess like a quiet, calm discussion and that kind of thing that you don't see in a lot of seventh graders. And, and so it's, uh, it was an interesting experience. I think, um, I think certainly, you know, in, in the world right now, that, that's just kind of how people get socialized in, at an early age as they go to school and they interact with their peers. Uh, I don't know that socializing necessarily should be uh, tied around uh, this kind of compulsory, you know, formal education that is really all about, you know, getting people ready for the workforce and that kind of thing. Um, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's just kind of how it is. There weren't really good equivalent communities for me to hone my social skills before I went to real school. You know, I would do summer camps here and there, but they they didn't really, um, you know, it wasn't like real community. And so I think that's a that's a challenge in homeschool right now. Yeah. W- yeah. The thing I wonder is, like, if you were to be tasked with redesigning, you know, sort of our K through 12 education based on the homeschool experience, what would you bring into it um, that you think would actually improve public school education? Because I happen to agree with you. Like, I always joke that I'm a failed byproduct of the education system. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're going to get me started on a, a big, big topic here in, in terms of education. What are my favorite topics? Oh, this yeah. is why I asked too. it. Yeah, so um, I think for one thing, it, it's just kind of a byproduct of our overall culture that everything in the education system is designed to create good workers, basically. Uh, it's not designed to create good, wise uh, humans and citizens and all that, and and. Ultimately, if a school did prioritize these things, I think, uh, you know, those students probably wouldn't do great on their SATs and wouldn't get into college at as high a rate. And, uh, you know, as a result, that school would be seen as a failure, just given our current system. Uh, but I do think that uh, an ideal society would be first and foremost teaching people how to be good human beings, how to be happy, how to regulate their emotions, their behaviors and think clearly. Um, and and uh, so the question is, in that ideal society, how would we structure that? Well, I think for one thing, uh, there's really no need for school to be this place where you go and you sit in a room with 30 other kids and a teacher uh, spouts out the same lecture that they've been teaching, you know, year after year, semester after semester. Uh, we have the technology now to basically decide what is the most effective way to teach Algebra 2, for example. And we can just broadcast that to everyone. So uh, that would also free up a lot of teachers for more one-on-one tutoring. Um, but overall, you know, a big part of my work is informed by this idea that, uh, you know, if the school system is going to be about training workers and, and uh, producing profits, ultimately, we need something else. We need another institution that's centered around teaching wisdom. And that's a big part of what's given rise to Mindform, which is kind of kind of my online uh, school of, you know, what I call psychotecture and wisdom and all that. Um, but, you know, that in short, there's there's major efficiency problems with, you know, putting kids through these uh, mills, basically. Uh, there's there's major issues in what is treated like the most important stuff kids need to learn earliest. Uh, and so I think I think a lot of that uh, ideally would would be changed. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but think like when you, you're you in the elementary school, you literally don't learn any of the sort of essential skills you need for adulthood. You basically are like, all right, based, you go through, you get damaged, and then you spend God knows how long in therapy to fix all the things that are screwed up when you get to adulthood. Yeah. Uh, well, talk to me about the trajectory that has led you to this sort of perspective of studying the mind the way that you have. Because like I said, I think the depth of it and um, just the, the terminology 
was something I had never seen before. It was a really unique way of describing it. Uh, but I also noticed there are a lot of influences. So like, talk to me about sort of the trajectory that got you to hear it, how you've arrived at this perspective that eventually led to this book and, and even the previous one. Yeah. So uh, around the same time that I was, you know, going through this, uh, you know, comfort zone pushing project, I was also getting really interested in philosophy and psychology and stuff. I mean, at the time, it was YouTube videos and Wikipedia articles, but I was gradually getting more and more into uh, practical philosophy and the, the principles behind living a good life and, and being happy. And I was, I was also uncovering what I thought were sort of original insights. Turns out, you know, the Stoics beat me to most of them 2000 years ago, but I was uh, experimenting with my own mind and I was making these discoveries. I was saying, oh, so something bad can happen to me and I can change the way I think about it in my head and turn that into a positive emotion uh, instead of a negative one. And I was I was fascinated by this ability and, and sort of building out uh, materials before I even knew I wanted to write a book. I was taking all these notes uh, around this self-experimentation I was doing. And then uh, I started getting deeper into philosophy and psychology. I discovered Stoicism, which was a huge influence, uh, you know, ancient Greek philosophy that has a lot to say about how we regulate our emotions and how we deal with setbacks and focus on uh, what we can control instead of what we can't. Um, and I discovered Buddhism and Taoism and all these other practical philosophies uh, and also started getting into reading, you know, modern psychology and, and uh, you know, Maslow was a huge influence. Um, so, so ultimately, uh, this was one part of the trajectory that started, you know, in high school. Uh, and the other part sort of came when I went to college. And I, you know, despite being fascinated by philosophy and psychology all the, and all this, I didn't see myself as an academic, didn't really want to go that route. And so I ended up landing on product design, which is, uh, you know, a much more creative path, I think. And I'm, you know, very happy with that route. It, it enabled me to kind of developed these two different ways of thinking in tandem. In my free time, I was studying uh, philosophy and these kind of intellectual works. And through these uh, school projects and eventually through my work and, and clients, I was uh, developing my creative capacities, learning how to create useful, beautiful things. Um, and, uh, and that ended up leading to, uh, you know, working with a number of startups to develop physical products and apps and uh, all that kind of thing. And so in many ways, what, what led to Design in the Mind was a merging of all these different uh, passions that were separate originally. And, you know, some were my work and some were recreational. And uh, eventually I realized I can put these together and build this one big combination of all my passions and skills. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that strikes me most about the trajectory is that that is an unusual level of self-awareness for somebody so young to do a deep dive into all this kind of stuff. Because I can tell you, if you had told me any of even what I talk about here on this podcast and the people that I interview in high school, I would have written it all off as nonsense. And it was like, this sounds new agey and sounds like total bullshit. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because you weren't socialized through our school system? I think that's a part of it. I think part of it is is uh, just genetics. My parents are both very uh, kind of thoughtful, reflective people. And, um, you know, my mom in particular is all about uh, 
all about this stuff. She she was not a typical mom. She she's interested in lots of new age philosophy out there stuff. Uh, and so I I think uh, I think it's a mix of all this stuff. And and I know, uh, you know, from an early age, I was realizing the power of going on walks and just asking myself questions and introspecting. Um, and that ended up leading to a you know deck of introspection cards later. Uh, because I realized not everyone is doing this, you know, not everyone is regularly uh, inquiring into their moods and their beliefs and and all this stuff. But I think I'm just uh, very much wired to be obsessed with what's going on inside my mind instead of what's going on around me and sometimes to a fault, but uh, I have to get yeah. into that. <laughs> well, so the title of the book is Become Who You Are. And, you know, I, I thought, how do we even open up discussing this book because of the depth of it? But how do we even get to a place where we need to become who we are? Because that, that just, you know, it's sort of like an interesting paradox. We're like, wait, I'm not who I think I am. Um, so how do we even get to that place where we are not who we actually are? Like, where does, like, what is the origin of that? Yeah, so so this idea really, uh, at least the phrase goes back to Nietzsche. He said, become who you are. And, and he said it a few times, and it's always pretty cryptic. And you kind of have to study uh, his work a lot to sort of, start wrapping your head around what it means. Uh, but the core idea is that we essentially have these uh, values. We have these impulses of admiration that we feel uh, toward other people. Uh, you know, we feel pride when we do certain things. And uh, these are all a little bit idiosyncratic, right? They vary from one person to another. Um, and what I think Nietzsche believed and what uh, Maslow believed as well is that these uh, these natural sort of responses that we have of admiration create a kind of blueprint for who our ideal self would be, right? And in some ways, these impulses are more us than we already are, right? We have to basically go through a process of, of shaping ourselves into the kind of person we would most admire. Uh, and that can require a lot of both inquiry and experimentation. But um, you know, essentially the idea is that those impulses, when you see someone you admire, when you see someone take an action uh, that you appreciate, and, and when you do something you feel proud of, these all kind of start pointing toward a direction. And if you pay attention, they'll tell you, you know, how you need to change, right? What, what will make you feel the best about yourself, the most proud of yourself? Uh, and that's essentially what it what it means to become who you are is to change your behaviors so that they align with your ideals as much of the time as possible. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, you say that we're continually surprised to find that the life events we expect to defeat or delight us simply don't deliver. We stumble in the same way one would stumble when navigating a foreign terrain with the wrong map. And you know, on the flip side of that, you just said, like, we look at the people who we admire. I'll give you an example. We're both authors, right? So we look at somebody like Ryan Holiday and we think, okay, I, I only know this because I got a book deal with the same imprint. And to your point, you know, whatever happiness you get from that or whatever sort of, you know, temporary ego inflation you get from that doesn't last. So how is it that we continually find ourselves surprised and yet we, we can, you and I can talk about it and beat it like a dead horse and Everybody who has not experienced that thing will say, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Mm -hmm. It's like when somebody who's a billionaire says, ah, money won't make you happy. It's like, yeah, you're a fucking billionaire. Of course you say that. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so this is, uh, I think it's actually something that we're, we're wired to think about this incorrectly. Evolution, uh, didn't really program us to have a clear understanding of our own happiness. And so 
it kind of built us, I think, to uh, constantly think that more success, more gains, more pleasure, it's going to result in the kind of deep happiness that we really want. And it continually doesn't deliver. We continue to uh, want more as soon as we get what we thought we wanted. And, and uh, we continue not to learn from you know, these, these lessons. And, and I think a part of what could help us overcome that is having a better map for navigating our lives. And that's kind of what I introduce in, in part one of the book, the idea that you can think about the way we normally navigate our lives as this two-dimensional map where we're trying to optimize for pleasure and for gain, right? And we're trying to avoid pain and loss. Uh, and, and this is the map we're using and trying to make ourselves happier. But actually, when we observe what makes us happier, we see it doesn't correspond to these two dimensions of pleasure and gain. It, it responds to something else entirely. And so I sort of describe that by uh, adding a third dimension to this map and basically creating a topographical map uh, where you're always moving up or down in a third dimension. Um, and this third dimension corresponds to how much we admire our own behaviors, how much they align with our values. And so in this sense, it's not uh, whether you get the, the million dollar book deal or whatever. It's about whether you are uh, bringing out your virtues as a writer uh, every day. So it's, it's much more of a process oriented kind of thing. And it's a question of what will enable me to bring out my strengths or my virtues most effectively. Uh, you know, a big part of this um, is, is uh, lost my train of thought there, but um, I'm sure it'll come back in a second. But yeah, well, I think that one of the things you, that struck me most about the book was how much you talked about virtues and you made a distinction between values and virtues. You said values are like containers. Virtue is what goes inside of them. Values are the evaluative impulses in our minds that look for virtue in human behavior. Virtues are the traits that align with our values. Can you expand on that for people listening and, and what you mean by that and how it plays into this whole idea of our happiness? Sure. So the first thing to kind of point out anytime you're talking about virtue today, it sort of strikes people as this like moral purity. It sounds preachy. Uh, and that's really not what we're getting at it. The term has a much richer history than how we sort of associate it today. And so um, really what I mean by virtue is anything that you are good at, anything that you pride yourself on, it could be courage, creativity, your sense of humor, right? Whatever that thing is, uh, or that set of things, those are, those are the virtues we're talking about here. Uh, and so values are what we sort of use to, to evaluate someone else's virtues. So if we value honesty and someone else has the virtue of honesty and they're bringing that out through their behaviors, then we'll, then we'll admire them and we'll, we'll think to ourselves, okay, that, that's a good thing to do. And when someone doesn't, it sort of violates our values. Uh, and so really, they, a lot of the time, the, the two terms can be used almost interchangeably, but it's good to understand kind of the relationship between the two. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about money, uh, because you say that money can easily become a pathological addiction. Making too much money can distract you from the virtue game that is taking place beneath the surface. It can train you to think of it as your sole aim in life, despite the fact that it may not facilitate or may even impede your virtual, your vertical trek to virtue. Um, talk about that because I mean, like, you know, you hear phrases like money makes the world go round. Like you watch the, you know, TV show Narcos is one of the first things they say in the third season. And it's like, you want to take down a drug cartel, follow the money. Um, 
and this is such a sort of like polarizing subject for people and an emotional one. I, you know, we've had so many conversations about money that I always joke that if I actually implemented the advice of every single guest, theoretically, I should be a billionaire with six back apps, given the amount of advice I've got from incredible people, but I'm not, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, so the, the idea that I share in this book, you know, you, you, you do have people who kind of worship money and, and we think there's something kind of unhealthy about that, but we've also got people who are saying money doesn't buy happiness and it's irrelevant. And, something seems kind of naive about that as well. I mean, if someone's really struggling to pay their bills, can you really say that money isn't, uh, isn't helpful for them? It isn't going to do anything. Um, and, and so I think this framework that I introduce in the book will help people uh, navigate these matters because ultimately the question asked is, will this enable me to bring out more of my unique virtues or will it prevent me from doing that? And in some cases, for some people and in some contexts, more money would actually be huge for getting to where they can bring out more of their virtues. If they're stuck in a mindless job where they're not doing anything that they're really good at and they're, they're just doing, you know, monotonous tasks and they're trapped in that situation, that's actually preventing them from doing the kind of activities that would uh, help them bring out their virtues and achieve, you know, greater happiness in life. Um, but on the other hand, you could also have someone who is doing things that are really uh, bringing out their strengths, that's exercising their virtues every day through their work. And if they won the lottery and quit their job and started, you know, doing nothing as a result and sitting around and saying, I don't have to work anymore, you know, they might actually see a huge reduction in their overall well-being uh, because they've gotten reliant on uh, all this money and they, they've gotten out of the domains that were previously bringing out their strengths. So it's actually uh, resulting in lower happiness. And, and when, you've, when you've got a lot of money coming in, it can be very hard to walk away from it and from a situation that's not really contributing to your thriving and is causing you to stagnate, right? It becomes a temptation and an addiction uh, at a certain point. And so I think the, the question should always be, will this actually enable me to bring out more of my unique strengths or will it suppress that ability? Uh, and that's the question to be asking uh, first and foremost and use the money thing as more of a means to an end. Yeah. Well, let's talk about status uh, in particular because I think that that ties really nicely to the city of money because I think obviously money in some ways can be something that raises your status. But we live in this world where we are being ranked and categorized and quantified endlessly thanks to you know, tools like social media. And one of the things that you say is higher social esteem is not necessarily better than lower social esteem. The quest for status and popularity may pressure us into becoming less virtuous, satisfying our social drives while moving us further away from our values. And, you know, we have Will Storer here who wrote, um, you know, selfie, how we become so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us. Um, and so talk to me about the, the role of status in overall just happiness and, and how we don't, you know, get caught up in these status games, because I think that that's, Largely, you know, in a lot of ways, social media seems to me like one giant status game um, when everybody's like accomplishments are publicly on display. Yeah, it it is a really uh, tricky kind of minefield, I think. I will say that there's in, in some ways status is just like money and that it, it can be viewed as a means to an end of, of greater virtue. But I also think uh, there's something kind of unique about status in that I have argued in this book that basically this whole happiness mechanism in our brain uh, was put there in order to 
basically maximize social status. So we've got this mechanism in our brains that's telling us, oh, that you just did a thing that people don't approve of. Uh, you should feel worse about yourself. And it, it's delivering these negative moods and chemicals uh, bringing us down. And similarly, we get you know positive emotions when we do something that other people approve of and like. And so in many ways, uh, our self-esteem echoes our social esteem and they kind of go together in a lot of ways. Um, but I also think it can be really dangerous to treat the, the social esteem itself like the end goal uh, because ultimately uh, not everyone in your community or your friend group or, or whoever it is uh, is going to have the same values as you, who is going to reward the same types of behaviors that you most admire. And so if you allow that to be to essentially rule your life and your behavior, you might find yourself becoming a person that you yourself don't even approve of. And that's ultimately that the one person who is most important uh, to get the approval of is yourself. That's essentially what I'm arguing in this book is the highest peak of well-being or what, what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia is really a, a state of being highly approving of yourself uh, and justifiably so, right? Feeling like your behaviors that you're taking on a regular basis are exactly what you would admire in someone else. And so I think status can be both a good uh, kind of source of feedback for whether you're living according to your values or not, but it can also be a, a big distraction. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, so how do you even get to a place where you don't think highly of yourself? You know, I mean, I'm sure people feel that, like where you have low self-esteem. I know you've written a lot about self-esteem and, and depression. Um, and then, of course, how do you get to a place where you do actually start to approve yourself? Because I think that that is one of those things where we kind of, you know, understand it intellectually, but living it is all different animal altogether. Yeah. So I think, I think one, uh, one thing that comes to mind certainly is that we can take actions that we are really, uh, that we personally find repugnant. We can, you know, take what, what are often called vices, uh, and, and do things that we're, you know, really notably not proud of. But I think it's much more common that we just, uh, find ourselves in a lifestyle where we're not bringing out the strengths that we most pride ourselves on. And so, you know, this is kind of my experience when I was uh, working as a product designer several years ago, uh, is, is I found myself in a place where most of the creativity and the vision and, and the strengths that I had prided myself on had slowly uh, sort of crept their way out of my regular behaviors. And so um, at work, uh, my role had sort of shifted to where I was doing drafting and engineering instead of conceptual design, which I was good at. And so uh, gradually, I got to where I wasn't seeing evidence of my own greatest strengths and uh, put a pandemic on top of it. And I wasn't seeing a lot of evidence for my interpersonal strengths either, because I wasn't having that much personal interaction. And so what all this adds up to is a life where your brain that's looking for evidence of the things you're best at isn't able to find that evidence. I think for a lot of people, this can happen through the, the really addictive things like social media and video games and junk food and drugs, basically all these uh, delightful things that we don't even have to leave our house for. Uh, what that does is it traps us in this lifestyle where we're consuming and we're, uh, you know, staying hooked on these things that provide short-term pleasure, 
but they don't bring out a lot of virtue. It doesn't take a lot of uh, personal strength to, to watch a show or to scroll through social media. And as a result, it doesn't deliver the right messages to our brains. And we start not seeing uh, the evidence for that, um, you know, that we are approvable, that we do have those strengths that we pride ourselves on. And so one of the best ways to get out of a cycle like this is to adopt a, a daily activity schedule. If you are finding yourself feeling depressed, you've got low self-esteem, you're struggling to leave the house or even get out of bed on any given day, um, it's really important to slowly and gradually add the add activities to your life and schedule activities that are going to bring more and more of that virtue out into your life. And so initially, that may be a very low level thing, like every day I'm going to get out of bed and take a shower and clean up my room. And as you move up on that well-being scale, you get to where you can say, okay, now every day I'm going to go on a walk and read a chapter of a book. And as you sort of reach to higher and higher points on this scale, uh, it starts looking much different. It starts looking unique and idiosyncratic. And the question becomes, uh, what's some unique vessel that I can build in my life that will allow unusual degrees of my unique strengths to come out in my life? And so for me, so kind of the high level of that was, you know, founding Designing the Mind and creating this opportunity essentially for me to bring out all my greatest strengths in one place. And so there's this whole spectrum of well-being that you work your way up and I've argued that you do it by building more and more of those unique virtues into your life. Hmm. Well, speaking of, of the pandemic, I know you uh, alluded to autism uh, in the book, and you say that autistic people are often intriguing and impressive in unique ways. They can be unusually creative, honest, and thoughtful. They have been behind countless breakthroughs in collective, collective understanding of art and technology. This means they can attain a certain kind of social or romantic feel, even if they're often eccentric or socially awkward. Um, and it, it's funny because I've had, I think, a total of three guests who were on the spectrum. One who had been a former guest and later diagnosed, who I'd never known, uh, Chad McMullen had talked about this. I remember her writing a blog post about it. Uh, another was Kelly Gordon, who was a communications coach. Um, and then there was another who was an absolutely brilliant guy who got so mad when we aired the interview that he emailed me and told me he would file a lawsuit if we didn't take it down, um, even oh though the God. interview was fantastic. Uh, and so talking about how we misunderstand this and, and also like, you know, for somebody who gets a diagnosis later in life, like what that does to the sense of identity. Yeah, so uh, this was kind of a part of that same struggle where I was, you know, struggling to bring out my strengths in my work. And I had a coworker who uh, sort of unsolicitedly diagnosed me with autism and uh, you know, as, as uh, kind of frustrating as that was at the time, I, I went and did my own research and said, yeah, actually, this is this is probably right. And so uh, I, I diagnosed myself with autism pretty late in life. Um, you know, that, that term diagnosis kind of implies a disease or a disorder. Uh, but the more I have kind of studied it, the more I think actually uh, these neurotypes are probably actually adaptive. They probably evolved for a good reason. Uh, and that has to do with how uh, people on these spectrums, whether it's, you know, it's autism or ADHD, uh, have these unique strengths that they're able to bring to the social landscape and uh, achieve a different kind of social approval. I think for me, you know, I have uh, struggled with like normal, you know, social interactions since I was very young. And I think 
that, in addition to the homeschool thing, is uh, part of why I, I struggled early on. Um, but I also know that I really thrive in creative and intellectual domains. Uh, you know, I've always been pretty musically talented. So I've got these uh, gifts that that I think have gotten me uh, other kinds of social approval and have gotten people to kind of be impressed with me. And you often hear similar stories about others. I mean, uh, you know, you've got people like Elon Musk who are, have said they're on the spectrum. And, uh, you know, very often these people have uh, unique talents. And, and I see this as a kind of frequency dependent selection, which is something we see in uh, certain animals, you know, certain birds and guppies, right? Where Basically, certain traits, uh, in their case, often like colorations and that kind of thing, uh, become really coveted in the evolutionary space, specifically because they are rare, because you don't see them that often. And so even though they can come at a cost in some cases, uh, the benefits can outweigh the costs. And so I've yeah. you know, been studying people who are autistic and who have ADHD, and, and they often do have these strengths that in some ways outweigh their, their social difficulties or their uh, difficulties and executive function and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I've come to the conclusion that these are evolutionary adaptations and not best viewed as diseases or disorders. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you, like, I got diagnosed with ADHD when I was 28 and it was a relief because it just suddenly clarified why I had been so bad at my jobs. But um, the thing I found was when I started working for myself, like I found that I could do things at a speed, like what normal people will take to do in a week, I would be done with in a day. Um, that was like the blessing and curse of ADHD is like when you're interested in something, you have laser light focus when you're not. <laughs> Good luck getting you to pay right. attention for even a second. Yeah. And, and, you know, people with ADHD are also often the most charming, funny people that you're, you'll ever meet. And I have many friends. Uh, that fall into this category. So there's lots of strengths that come along with it. There are difficulties too. And and I also think some of those difficulties arise because of the difference between our modern world and the the evolutionary world that we evolved in. I mean, we didn't have to sit at a computer and and focus on things we didn't want to in in the, you know, 100,000 years ago. Uh, we didn't also didn't have to meet a bunch of strangers in my, in my case because, you know, you would have had you know, basically 150 people that you knew since you were born. And so there are a lot of things about the modern world in particular that exacerbate these difficulties and make these conditions look like disorders when really they, they might be better viewed as gifts. Yeah, well, so the thing that I think is, is so striking, like right when we got on camera, because I remember reading that book thinking, I was like, I wonder if this is going to be a difficult interview or a difficult conversation, but none of the way that you and I have interacted would make me think that you were on the spectrum on any level. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I've, I've often thought to myself, like, uh, I really wish social interactions were like podcasts. Like if 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 that's what a party was, if I just walked into a party and everyone was like quietly seated and asking me like one question at a time about things I'm interested in and knowledgeable about. Oh, I would be the the life of the party. <laughs> but uh, so that's uh, it, it's funny that I, I think I don't come across that way to someone on a podcast or whatever. But um, yeah, in, in real life, socializing is a much messier, more emotional dance, I think, and then, a, you know, information exchange. And so I think that's a that's a big part of that. But also, I've I do think I've done a lot of work to overcome some of those difficulties. And that's why I do have a, you know, people in my life that I love and a partner and that I'm very happy with. So 
Um, yeah, I think it's a combination of those things. Let, let's talk about seeking external approval because you know we kind of alluded to this earlier. We live in a world where you have you know access to validation on demand, um, which is kind of a, a double-edged sword, right? Because it's not really true validation anyway at all. But one thing you say is that if you optimize for social approval, your well-being will be completely reliant on other people reacting to you the way that you want. Now, of course, we live in a social world. We also don't want people to constantly react in negative ways to us. Like then you kind of have to look in the mirror and say, well, maybe I'm the asshole. You know, um, so where, where's the line here? Like, you know, obviously, I think I agree with you that social approval is not something you should optimize for. But I think it matters like to a degree. Um, I think it's just that we push that to the point of diminishing returns. Yeah, I think similar to the, you know, the status thing. It's like, well, what really matters is your own values. And ultimately, if you're finding that you're living according to your own values, but you're not getting social approval, you're probably in the wrong social groups. You probably need to find people who have values similar to yours uh, that will approve of you for the right reasons. Because, yeah, if you, if you, uh, you know, allow the people around you to dictate uh, how you act and how you live, eventually you're, you're going to get shaped into someone that you yourself aren't happy with, you aren't proud of. And so, uh, and this is one of the ways I think that, that you could decline into a depression is, is you uh, basically allow a social group's validation to shape your behaviors to the point where you don't even like you, right? I've had times where I uh, shaped my behaviors according to social groups and uh, just felt kind of gross about it. Didn't feel good about who I was. And that's kind of an indication you need to find different people. And and maybe that means you need to get off social media or you need to, you know, change jobs or whatever it is. Uh, you you got to find a group that approves of you for the right reasons, right? Not the wrong ones. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, of all places where that idea becomes really challenging uh, is adolescence. Like I think seventh grade in particular, you know, you weren't so much in high school, but like if you go from elementary school to seventh grade, everybody's had this experience where teenagers are assholes. Like, let's just put it bluntly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think you turn into an asshole without even realizing when you're a teenager, your parents become the most god-awful people in the world and you start to care about really superficial things. Like, I, I very distinctly remember just caring so much about, you know, what shoes I was wearing, whether I had the latest, you know, nice brand polo shirts or whatever it is, because that was kind of the thing, like, you know, everybody in school who was in like a popular kid's group, they all came from families that had money and, oh, and they dressed well. Out there. I'm sorry. So what I was saying is that in junior high, you just start to almost have this level of, of obsession with social approval that is really unhealthy. And I think there's no place in life, no time in life when dealing with this desire for external approval is more challenging. I think you kind of go out of it, but, you know, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's easy with uh, adolescence to just blame the hormones. But I think a big part of it is that uh, it takes people too long to start uh, figuring out who they are and what they value and how they want to act. I think it, it kind of goes back to what we we're saying about education. It's like if we were teaching people how to introspect, how to figure out who they are, how to, you know, identify their values and what kind of things they like and don't like and, and approve of and admire. Uh, if we were teaching this at a really early age, right, maybe adolescents wouldn't be known as this shitty time where everyone's uh, being a jerk and, and turning into a jerk unknowingly. You know, I think it takes us a long time until adulthood often to figure out who we really are. And that's why I've, I've said we have an introspection deficiency 
in our culture, right? And I've tried to create tools to help people, you know, ask these questions about themselves earlier on so that we could be quicker to get to a point where we know uh, this is who I want to be. This is what I'm proud of. This is what I'm not proud of and not have to waste all those years, uh, you know, trying things that just don't work ourselves. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of self-acceptance in more depth because you say artificial ego inflation is not actually self-acceptance. Self-acceptance doesn't mean let you letting go of your values. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you accept who you are, uh, who you are not, accept that you have flaws, accept that you're not perfect and that you never will be, accept that there's lots of room to improve yourself. And most importantly, accept your real genuine strengths. Uh, and it's funny because I think the part that a lot of people struggle with is accepting their flaws, like admitting the things that they are deficient at, you know? Um, like I, I remember once I, I wrote an article about, uh, you know, like how to succeed as a writer on the internet and it went out with typos, like in the, the newsletter. And somebody called me out and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, this is really embarrassing. But I also know I'm like, you know, ADHD. I, I, one of my own copywriters was like, how the hell did you get a book deal? He said, you have such atrocious spelling and you make so many errors. And I'm like, I had an editor. Uh, but right. it was just one of those moments that kind of just, I thought of that moment as I read that quote. Yeah, well, so there, there's a few things there. I mean, there, there is this sort of uh, self-compassion movement right now that I think is overall a really healthy thing, right? And the message is uh, accept yourself exactly as you are. Don't feel like you have to deny or suppress uh, who you are because of these flaws that you have. Um, on the other hand, I think it, it leans a little too far towards uh, not feeling the need to change or modify yourself. Um, I think I think it's very important that we approve of ourselves because of the things that we thrive at, right? That we approve of ourselves because of our values and not uh, just throwing our values out the window and saying, uh, you know, I'm I'm as good as I can ever be because I'm a human being, right? I mean, yes, you should accept you know, your, your strengths and your flaws, right? There's, there's no real conflict between accepting where you're at now and choosing to become better, right? But that's, that's something that gets lost a lot of the time in the self-compassion message is that, yeah, you, you should accept yourself, but then you should ask, how can I improve these things? I talk about the virtue portfolio or the collection of strengths that you have. Uh, and I basically recommend that for most people, you focus on those things that you've always really thrived at and you double down on those strengths instead of dwelling too much on your weaknesses. So you may have to just say, you know, I'm not great at this and that's okay. It, you know, it's better for me to focus on the things I am great at and try to take them further than dwelling on this this flaw that I have. Uh, yeah. But I also think it's, it's best to say, yes, I accept myself as I am now. And two, I'm going to see if I can become better and if I can align with my values to a higher degree, right? And so it's, uh, there's two parts to it and they're not in conflict. Yeah, I think that I appreciate the idea of you saying like, in one way we've taken it too far because uh, Dan Pink even said this to me in an interview. He said, you know, we particularly as Americans are over-indexed on positive emotions. And I, I think that we take this whole positive thinking idea too far to the point where it creates delusional optimism and really like, amplifies every cognitive bias when you have this sort of delusional level of optimism without you know, being truthful with yourself to say like there are things that i know i will never be able to do um and that's just reality and i think that you know people 
I, I think there are certain aspects of, of self-improvement, like genetic determinism, I think is one of those things that is really just frowned upon in the whole world of self-improvement. And I'm like, that's ludicrous. Genetics determine lots of things. Like that's something that you cannot change. Like I'm never going to be seven feet tall, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one that you're definitely not going to change. And there are some that you easily can change. And there's a lot of middle ground between those two where you, you kind of have to try things out and experiment in order to figure out how malleable that thing is. I mean, there are some things that if you spent 10,000 hours, uh, you really could make t- huge progress in changing that thing that you assumed was genetic. So uh, there's a case to be made for not too quickly jumping to the genetic determinism uh, conclusion. But, you know, there are also times when you, you can put in tons of hours, you, you can see very little growth and improvement, and you, you would be best off saying, you know what, this isn't worth my time to try to improve a little bit when I could focus on something else. And so I think, uh, I think yeah, it's, it's about getting out there and actually learning and trying things and seeing how quickly you're able to grow, how easily you're able to improve in that area and uh, deciding which, which uh, hills you want to die on and which ones you can be at peace with, right? Well, you just alluded to virtue convergence and you go on towards the end of the book uh, to say your job in life is to maximize your virtue. This is the most healthy, energizing, life-affirming and truly altruistic thing you could do. Don't ever let anyone convince you that you should feel guilty for working towards excellence. And then you go on to t- talk about psychotechnology, which you say is the process of designing your own mind, optimizing the internal patterns of your own beliefs, emotions, and behaviors. And within that framework of the overview, you can fit into this practice into a broader perspective. And to take part in it, you must cultivate metacognitive awareness, use reason to strategically coordinate your virtues, and change the habitual patterns of your character. So I'm talking about, like, what does that actually look like in practice? Because like I said, the depth of this book was really what got me and I, I thought, I mean, this is going to be really hard to do in an hour. But I, at the same time, like I, I thought this is in my mind, I left with this, you know, and maybe this was very much by design. I was like, this book left me with a lot more questions than answers, which I think is actually not a bad. Thing. Yeah, no, that that's uh that's a good thing. And it's good when you when you have those questions that we can kind of explore and dig into together. I think, uh, you know, so two different things in that one is uh, virtue convergence. Uh, and this idea of kind of bringing together uh, multiple things that you thrive at, right? To me, this is kind of the holy grail of this process of of personal growth and and striving toward eudaimonia or well-being. Um, it's this idea that if you can create one area where, where you can bring multiple strengths in, if you can uh, find some area where lots of different things that you thrive at uh, are able to come out together in, in a synergistic way. Uh, that's one of the the best ways to you know cultivate greater well being. So I talk about designing your virtue domains, de- designing these spaces, uh, and and to me, um, you know, what I've done with designing the mind here is kind of a an ideal example because you know I I spent a long time asking myself how am I going to bring my uh, writing and my interest in philosophy and psychology and all this stuff into uh, what I'm doing in my work. And I've, I've been asking, where do I go next with my design career? And, and uh, you know, it kind of occurred to me at one point, well, what if I bring all these things together? What if I, uh, you know, start designing, you know, beautiful products that also teach these psychological principles? What if I, uh, you know, start hosting events with uh, members on Mindform and, and uh, you know, use that to bring out 
more of my strengths. And so uh, to me, the, the, the thing that we should all be asking is how can I create some kind of vessel like this where all the things that I thrive at are together in one place? If I imagine the anti-mind form, uh, right, the, the thing that would be like a combination of all my weaknesses, it's uh, scary to think about. Like it would be terrible. But, um, you know, finding that space where all your, all your strengths kind of come together, that's uh, the core idea of virtue convergence. Now, yeah. psychotecture you referenced too, that's kind of the topic of my first book. And I think they do go together in many ways, but it's kind of the act of, uh, designing all the the micro habits in your mind, the you know cognitive biases, the emotional reactions, and the the behaviors and habits. Uh, asking yourself how you can change this interconnected chain of uh, you know thoughts and feelings to work better with you. And I think in many ways, uh, you know, these principles of psychotecture are foundational to uh, the process of becoming that I talk about in this book. Right? How can I? Uh, cultivate these strengths like self-mastery and wisdom uh, so that I'll be better able to uh, use that self-control to cultivate these strengths, to use that wisdom to know which direction to be headed. Uh, and so it's very, uh, very much synergistic endeavors. Yeah. Well, let's finish this up by talking uh, about authenticity, because I think authenticity in my mind is one of those very misunderstood things. And, you know, like I have asked the question, you know, which I'll ask you at the end of the interview, I, I, you know, like, what does it mean to be unmistakable? And so many people say authenticity. And that means so many different things to so many people. And I think often people consider, you know, sort of just being like shooting from the hip with authenticity, like just saying whatever the hell is on their mind. And <laughs> you and I both know this as a public figure, that's just not viable. Like there's plenty of things you and I probably say with our friends that we would never say in a public forum. Um, so talk to me about like what authenticity means. Today. Like what is the definition of authenticity? Like, how do you define it? Yeah, I, I think it is uh, the kind of authenticity we should be aiming for, I think is largely synonymous with like self-actualization. It's, it's uh, how can I bring out, uh, you know, the best of me and, and in many ways, the, the parts of me that I admire that I'm proud of. Um, you know, it, it's not to bring out everything I think for everyone to see, because ultimately, uh, this does get really ambiguous. You know, what, what exactly, uh, does that mean to bring out every part of me? For, um, and so I think, uh, I, I think it is most important that you are trying to self actualize, that you're trying to, uh, realize through your life, through your lifestyle and your behaviors, uh, all the things that you, admire most in others. And I think that's, um, that's the best way to think about authenticity in the sense that we should be uh, striving for it, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, uh, this book was just deep and rich with very thought-provoking insights. So I mean, we could spend hours talking about each section. Um, but in the interest of time, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes them do something unmistakable? Yeah, so I really like this concept. And I know, um, you know, it's also the title of one of your books. And the subtitle of that book, I think, was uh, why, why it's better to be the only than the best. And this is an idea that, uh, you know, I've heard in a few different forms. And I, I even cite it in my first book, Kevin Kelly, uh, saying, you know, don't be the best, be the only. Very similar concept. And I think this is uh, such a, a huge, uh, important idea for creatives and really for anyone, 
uh, is because I think we have a tendency to rank ourselves in a linear fashion and to ask who's doing better or something when really we, we should be very much thinking about in terms of uh, how can I uh, get to a place where my work and my actions are most aligned with who I am and, and basically become more and more unique and idiosyncratic. That's, I think, a lot of the the theme that's coming up here is, you know, through my work, I've tried to to make design in the mind, uh, you know, more Ryan Bush than anything else. I've tried to make it so that you couldn't it couldn't mistake it for someone else's work. And and I even say in the book, you know, a, ro- a rewarding activity is one that requires more of your unique strengths to do. And hence, the most rewarding activity will be one that only you could do. And if you can get to a place where you're able to bring uh, those unique strengths and skills together to a point where only you could do what you're doing. There's no one else in the world with the same combination of perspectives and passions and strengths. Uh, then I think that that is both what it means to be unmistakable and it, it's really what it means to become who you are. So I think it's, uh, you know, very much, uh, very much how we should all be approaching our lives. Beautiful. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, and everything else you're up to? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. You you can, uh, soon you'll be able to pre-order Become Who You Are. Uh, but in the meantime, you can always go to designingthemind.org slash psychitecture. Uh, and uh, if you go there, you will get a couple of free books. The, the Psychitech's Toolkit, uh, which is kind of an introduction to the main ideas of psychitecture and the Book of Self-Mastery. Uh, which is a quote compilation book that I put together. Uh, so you'll get those right away and you'll get on the email list and, and know when the book's available. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.